don't know what it is about a ukulele, but it makes me crave pineapple. How about you? (laughs) Yes, son, pineapple. You'll understand when you're older. Well, um, as we continue on in our series, we come to the story of Jesus and the temptation in the wilderness. You know, I don't know about you, but uh, I'm always excited on Super Bowl Sunday. Um, not necessarily for the game. I enjoy football, but I, I enjoy the fellowship and I enjoy the food. And uh, for the second year now, we're planning a men's night where we're gathering and we always, you know, try to emphasize, you know, bring meat, you know, uh, bring steak, bring duck, bring, I think someone's bringing pheasant dip. I, I don't even know what that is, but I'm sure that has something to do with an animal. So it's, you know, I enjoy that, um, that, that night and, and really just gathering with our brothers. And, um, but I don't know about you, but, you know, a lot of times when we go out and enjoy the, 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 you know, the different varieties of food, specifically meat, we usually don't think about the, the processes that go on to deliver such a, uh, a wonderful treat to us. Um, you probably don't labor over thinking about the, the, um, the ways in which they process meat and, and, you know, cows and pigs and so on and so forth. Um, but oftentimes we can take things that happen in the world and we can apply a spiritual application to them. Specifically in our passage today, um, one of the main themes of the temptation of Jesus is spiritual warfare. The fact that we are in a battle in this world between Satan and evil. And uh, there's a lot of spiritual application when we labor over a double cheeseburger at Five Guys and we think how that cow came to become a nice, juicy cheeseburger. Uh, In a book that's written by a a pretty well-known evangelical, his name is Russell Moore, it's called Tempted and Tried, he uses this example to help us understand that when cows go to the slaughterhouse, for years, farmers would take these cows and they would use cattle prods and electricity and different things to kind of force these cows to their very end. And what the farmers decided was that this was not a practical way. They resisted, they bunched up inside these, um, this machinery to, to basically take them to their end. And so what farmers decided to do was they decided to make uh, slaughtering of of cows a pleasant experience. Instead of uh, forcing them with violence and and pain, they made the slaughterhouse uh, a place of refuge for the cows. Matter of fact, they would would almost... dress up the slaughterhouse to, to become very, something similar to their own very home environment. They would, they would go in without resistance. They would be led down a, a channel where they would graze and eat uh, from, from troughs. And, and before they even knew it, uh, a conveyor belt would lift them up and, and take them uh, to, to the place where a machine would come by, slice their neck, and they're dead. And the whole purpose was, is to put them in a place, not that they were uncomfortable before their death, but to put them in the most comfortable environment before they were taken to the end. And, and Russell Moore uses this as a great example of the spiritual war that we fight every day. 
Not that Satan wants us to be uncomfortable and, and, and resist against evil, but instead, he wants us to be as comfortable as we can as Christians because that oftentimes is a place where we are led astray when we are the most comfortable. And this is the, the, the type of recognition that we have to give spiritual warfare today. Folks, we are always in a battle We always need to be aware of the temptations and the sin that lies at our door. We are constantly, as Ephesians 6 tells us, wrestling against, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's a battle. We are in a battle. And we are in a battle... Because Satan is not angry with us. We are in a battle because Satan hates God. Satan is, his attacks are always directed at God. And specifically this morning, they are directed at his son, Jesus Christ. This temptation account is a spiritual battle. And from it, we can learn truths for our own Christian lives as we see our Lord and Savior be, be tried and be tempted to sin. To be, uh, to, Satan tries his best to dethrone Jesus, to distract Jesus from the purpose that he had been set forth. So today we're going to spend a lot of time in Luke chapter 4. We're going to spend a little bit of time in Matthew as well as a parallel passage. So you may want to have um, your place there in Matthew chapter 4 as well. Mark also mentions this temptation in Mark chapter 1. It's just two sentences for Mark. As you remember as we study through this, Mark is a very concise writer. So hold your place really in Luke chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 4 as we begin. What I want us to focus on first is just to look at this uh, this battle that's been um, really orchestrated in time. Chapter 4 of Luke, verse 1 says that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit and had returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Now, when we think about this temptation account, one of the first things that we come to understand is that that this was no uh, mere wandering of Jesus into the wilderness and he stumbles upon this uh, attack against Satan. This was not a, um, a, just a, a traveling experience for Jesus and all of a sudden Satan lies in wait and he, he pounces upon Jesus. We could actually say that this whole experience was orchestrated by, Jesus, uh, by God for the sake of Jesus. We see that that this was the plan of God to allow Satan to tempt Jesus. And we can see that in every one of the situations or every one of the descriptions at the beginning of these temptation accounts. Now Matthew and Luke use a simple verb to say that Jesus was led by the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. That, That shows intentionality. 
That shows purpose. But even Mark uses a more forceful word. Mark, our, our gospel writer, loves to use words of, that are illustrative and, and emphatic. And so what we see from Mark is literally in verse uh, of Mark chapter 1, verse 13, that he was drove into the wilderness. That the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. That, that word there is actually used many other places when Jesus is casting out demons. It's the same word to be cast out, to be pushed out. And the, the emphasis is, is that God was, was in all ways in control of this situation with Jesus. Not tempting Jesus to sin, but allowing Jesus to face the temptation for a purpose. We think about this as, as the, the orchestration and the plan of God. Jesus was just baptized. Jesus was there being confirmed before the people and, and ultimately before John and, and, and Jesus himself to know that he is the son of God. That God was pleased in, in what he had come to do. And immediately we see he leaves the Jordan, he's out into the wilderness, and he's, he's going and he's, he's fasting. He's preparing. Now, you're going to find a difference in opinion on this, this, this topic. Some people believe that Jesus was tempted for 40 days. And the reason they would say that is because in Luke and Matthew, you have a participle that's used that uh, infers a, uh, a, a continual action in those 40 days. So like in Luke chapter 4, what we see is Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. That's a, that's a participle kind of helping us understand that, that, that there is a temptation going on. Matthew says something kind of similar. Matthew chapter 4, he says... That Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. But, G but Matthew includes, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry and the tempter came. So is there a dispute here? Was Jesus tempted for 40 days or was he tempted after 40 days? Well, it depends on how we interpret the 40 days. I believe that the 40 days represents a focused intentionality by Jesus to prepare himself for spiritual warfare. I believe that the fasting was intentional to prepare him for the battle that was to ensue. See, the 40 days doesn't just come in the life of Jesus. It first comes in the life of Moses. When Moses is on the mount in, in the presence of God, and he's in the presence of God for how long? For 40 days and 40 nights. He is communing with God. He is fellowshipping with God. We also see a, a, an understanding with Elijah of a 40 days and a, a 40 nights time of, of, of intentionality, of focus, and worship with God. So, of course, Jesus coming in the New Testament always represents the better Moses. He represents the better Elijah. He, he represents the better Adam and the better Israel and so on and so forth. I think that the 40 days and 40 nights of fasting actually come as a preparation for the battle and the ministry that would ensue. So in my opinion, I would say that Jesus is preparing himself, preparing for the spiritual warfare, communing with God and fellowshipping with him 
so that when this attack comes, not attack of, of, of daily 40 days and 40 nights, although we could all affirm that temptation continually came to Jesus. Jesus wasn't just tempted for these, these three temptations and, and the rest of his life. He was not the rest of his ministry. I think we continually see the attacks upon Satan and the temptations uh, for Jesus. And yet every time and at every turn, Jesus lived obediently without sin. And so what we have is kind of the setting of God orchestrating and allowing Satan to come. We should be reminded, as in Job teaches us, that, that Satan does not operate without the permission of Jesus without the permission of God, that he has to literally come and and stand before God and and ask for permission to even tempt Job. And so we can't uh, deduce from Scripture that that would be any different for coming to attack Jesus because we believe and Scripture makes it clear that our God is a sovereign God and that there is nothing that has ever been created or will be created that is outside his rule and his reign, including Satan and his demons. We can never say that, that God is guilty of tempting us into sin, but we can clearly affirm that he sovereignly rules and allows temptations to come, knowing fully on the second, the second part of that chapter of our life is that he empowers us through Jesus Christ to overcome those temptations. So he doesn't leave us to the, into the wind. So we have this, this scene that's being set, this battle that is going to ensue that God clearly intends for Jesus. And of course, we know that this battle really is just a shadow of the future battle that Jesus will fight on the cross with Satan. That when he dies and he gives his life for for mankind, it is the final blow for Satan. Satan is relinquished of his power. He's not utterly destroyed at that moment physically and for all eternity, but his power is diminished and destroyed when Jesus dies on the cross and rises from the grave. Which is why we can proclaim, death, where is your sting? As Christians, as believers in Jesus. Of course, we know that Satan, um, we we know that Mark uses the term Satan. He uses the, the proper name that's been used in Scripture. And Satan means our enemy and our adversary. That Satan is the one who is opposing every uh, truth that comes from the mouth of God. Every essence of holiness and goodness in the world, Satan opposes by his limited power. And although we can look through the scope of Scripture and see that Satan opposes God, we cannot uh, affirm that Satan is equal in power with God. We must never Look at uh, God and Satan as a yin and a yang within the world. God rules over all, as I said, including evil. And so what we have to understand is that Satan submits and bows down even as the adversary of God. Now the, the, the writers of Matthew and Luke, they don't necessarily use the term Satan here. They use his description. He is the devil. So if, if Satan had a business card, his name would say Satan, but his description under that would be the accuser. 
He is the accuser. He is the father of lies. He, his purpose is to deceive us, to make us think that, that, that we are uh, living in truth or, or that, that there is uh, a certain truth bound up in things, but, but to, he wants us to maybe ignore the full truth. He wants us to, to, to live in such a way where maybe we live um, in, in, in what appears to be a, a godliness and a holiness, but really he wants us to live in a disobedience against God. We have to understand that, that Satan is a deceiver, that he is cunning. And when he, when he promotes himself in, in Scripture, he is promoting himself as one not who stands firm against God, but one who tries to deceive and tempt people to fall. His resume includes deception, dishonesty, falsehood. And this is what he wants us to fall into in our lives today. So we have this this battle that is ensuing. Satan is the enemy. He is the adversary of God. He is there to not only accuse, but to deceive to lie about the truth, to be dishonest. And the place for this setting is the wilderness. The wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Now we know that Jesus, as I said, was was fasting for those 40 days and 40 nights. He is hungry. His body is weak. You can imagine not eating for 40 days. Jesus is displaying his humanity. We see in Matthew chapter 4 that he literally says that Jesus was hungry, as we would all be hungry. And of course, with Satan's attack, we see that that there is a representation of Old Testament in this attack. In other words, there's a theme in, in this attack here that represents things from the Old Testament, events from the Old Testament. And the true two main events that draw our attention back to this temptation are number one, the temptation in the Garden of Eden with Adam. And the, the, the rebellion with, of Adam and Eve against God. And number two would be the, the, the people of Israel and their continual rebellion against God. And I want us to see those themes in this story because they're, they're, both, they're both very clear and yet also, um, they all point to Christ and, and what he fulfilled in ways that they could not. And the 40 days and 40 nights, as I said earlier, point to Moses, where Moses is in the, the presence of God on, the, on Mount Oreb for 40 days and 40 nights. And here he's dwelling in the presence of God. We know that Israel, they, they uh, wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And many people believe, and I, I would agree with them, that that 40-year span of rebellion and, 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 the, and the, the false worship of God, that that is um, as seen as, as what Jesus is coming to fulfill in those 40 days in the wilderness, where he is representing Israel as the one who will be obedient fully to God the Father. But I want you to notice in, uh, in one, one phrase in Mark chapter 1 that a lot of people would probably overlook. It says that he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals 
and the angels were ministering to him. I think that's an interesting phrase. No other uh, gospel writer mentions the wild animals. And I think initially the, the wild animals represent this environment that Jesus is in. This is the, this is the, the wilderness. This is a place of, of, of danger. And, and so the, the environments of Jesus fasting and, and the, the environment of Jesus uh, living in this environment, uh, facing this temptation, is, is that life was not easy for him. He was suffering and, and he was going through physical pain. And he was facing the threat of wild animals around him. But it's what the temptation represents. It's what the temptation represents that Jesus not only defeats Satan in this temptation, he not only overcomes the temptation of sin, but he represents this idea that eventually as he points to the cross and he, he goes to the cross to die for our sins, those wild animals will no longer be wild animals in the, in the, 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 uh, the future with Christ. We can think of it another way. All that Jesus was facing in the desert the hunger and the, the difficulty and the temptation of sin and even wild animals, Jesus' victory on the cross and his future consummation will erase all those things. This very environment of the wilderness will go away, a, a time of a place of peace and, and prosperity and love and grace and mercy that we will all experience. And so I think that environment is even being emphasized with the simple phrase of wild animals temptation to sin, wild animals, hunger, all pointing to what Christ will redeem and make new. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture for us in what Christ has accomplished on the cross. And it all points forward uh, when, from the temptation of Jesus when he is battling his adversary. So we come to this, these three temptations this morning in this battle, as it begins, as it ensues. And I want us to look at three different areas in these temptations. I want us to look at the, in each temptation, I want us to look at how Satan represents himself and then how God is represented through Jesus. Number one, Satan is a deceiver, but God is always faithful. Number one, Satan is a deceiver, but God is always faithful. This first attack by, by uh, Satan against Jesus is a very familiar attack. As the subtle deceiver, Satan intentionally comes to Jesus, and what does he say? He says, if you are the son of God. Now that should sound familiar to us. Because again, this is all linked in context to what's just happened. God has just proclaimed by all his glory and majesty that this is my son, who I am well pleased. And now Satan comes and attacks Jesus and says what? He says, if you are the son of God, it is Satan trying to diminish and twist the words of God. Satan trying to promote doubt with the word of God into the life of Jesus. And so in our minds, as we think about God's word, our minds should Im immediately gravitate to the story of the garden. Where in the same way, God has given his word. He's declared his word to Adam. And what does he do? Satan comes behind him and, and, and be, tries to, to tempt and cast doubt to the word of God. The similarities are so similar that they're even both centered around food. Adam is, or Jesus is hungry. 
And Satan is, is tempting him to say, if you are the son of God, take your physical need for food and display your power so that you can enjoy and, 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 and diminish that physical need. Same with Adam. God has said not to eat from this tree, but did he really say that? Should, should you not enjoy all that he's given you, even that tree? Fill your desire, fill your need for all things. And the truth is, is that Jesus replies using the word of God to teach us a very important lesson. That ultimately in our minds and our hearts, we should delight in a God who is faithful above our physical needs. He is the one who sustains us. He is the one who provides all that we need. And and Jesus' answer is this. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. What is he teaching us? He's teaching us that we as people of God, just as Jesus is saying that I find my sustenance and I find my satisfaction and I find my fulfillment, not in physical things, but in God and his faithfulness. God is faithful to provide for us. Now, what you need to understand about Jesus' responses in all three of these temptations is they all come from the book of Deuteronomy. And they specifically come through the section of Deuteronomy, chapters 4 through 6. And and the the, the idea, I'm sorry, not 4 through 6, 6 through 8. And the idea is is that this is kind of a a section in Deuteronomy where the the theme of that section is is that, that God is a faithful God. He has been a faithful God to Israel and he requires your obedience. He, re- he requires you to live according to his commands. And so we all know Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 6, which is kind of the, the, the headstone of, of, of that whole section in Deuteronomy, which says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And so it's, I have complete confidence that Jesus is thinking about this, this command to God's people to live and trust with, uh, in a faithful God who provides and protects them. And specifically, when Jesus quotes this verse, that, that man shall not live by bread alone, what he is quoting is that God provides for you. God protects you. God is a faithful God. Moses is reminding the people in Deuteronomy chapter 8, where this quote comes from, he is saying, look, You were hungry and God fed you with manna. You did not know, nor did your fathers know that that he might make you uh, know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus is using this to say, look, remember Israel in in this uh, temptation in the wilderness where they were given everything that they needed. And yet what happened? They were grumbling and they were complaining. They were dissatisfied. Why? Because they weren't delighting in God and his faithfulness. They were not remembering his provision. Instead, they were focusing on their physical need. And folks, if we can learn anything from this, number one, we can understand and know that Satan is deceiving and twisting Scripture. He is one that is going to come, whether it's in the garden, whether it's with Jesus, or whether it's with us. He wants to take the word of God. He doesn't want to throw it out. He wants to take the word of God and make you doubt it. 
Jesus, uh, Satan would rather see Bibles sitting on the shelf collecting dust because we don't believe in the authority and the power and the authenticity of it than seeing bur- Bibles burned in the square. Because he would rather us diminish the word of God or twist or contort the word of God to the way we want it to say, to things that we want it to say instead of it being eliminated completely. That's the way he operates. And folks, that challenges us in our own Christian lives to be the Bereans of the world who take what the word of God says and instead of just listening to the preacher to study it and to mine it and to discover the truths in it and to know it and be confident in it. Folks, you can't be spoon-fed the Bible the rest of your life. You have to learn and grow and become a full, mature, adult Christian who knows God's word, who can turn away from from false teaching and false er or erroneous teaching and truth and instead gravitate to the full authoritative word of God. This is what Satan wants to do. Instead, we turn and, re- and respond with an attack against him. And we don't attack with, with anything more than what we need, and that is the powerful word of God. The one, the one thing that does not change. We can, we can trust in its eternality. We can trust in its, in its truthfulness and its authority. So that no matter attacks by Satan during the Protestant Reformation or during Jesus' time or at the very beginning, his word doesn't change. And so the attack that we have against Satan, not only a defense but an attack against him, should always come from the word. Knowing it and and meditating on it and and being able to, to rest sure that what God says is true and that he is faithful. He will not change and it does not change. So the question in your own lives is, have you lived your life where you don't delight in God and his word? Where you don't, uh, you don't solidify your understanding of God's word? You're, you're merely just coming and, and being fed something and you're just believing everything and, and you're not necessarily uh, studying these things for yourself. Folks, let me tell you something. I, by all means, want you to listen Sunday to Sunday to the things that are being taught. But I have to admit to you, and, and, and you should know that I am, an, I am a fallible human being. There are times that, that I don't get it right. There are times that, that as, as much as I labor over the Word of God, there, there are times that, that I'm going to, uh, to, to, to misinterpret or do something that, that, that may be uh, wrong. And so what you have to understand is that your responsibility is to the Word of God as well to know it, to understand it, to grow in, in your knowledge and understanding as well as being a faithful listener and, and uh, one who meditates on it day by day so that you can, you can stand against the attacks of Satan. So number one, Satan is a deceiver and yet God is faithful to his word, to his promises. Number two, Satan is a blasphemer. And God does not share his glory. Number two, Satan is a blasphemer and God does not share his glory. Look in chapter four of Luke. In verse five, it says, The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. 
And it said to him, to you I'll give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I, I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, you shall not worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now let me just tell you that knowing the word of God and, and understanding the word of God is important. There's a story that goes that um, contained in a little, a little treasure box of scriptural truth with a, with a little card and daily reminder of God's word. You maybe have it in your bathroom and you look at it and you just be, you're refreshed. Well, there's a, a true story that contained in those cards is this in verse Luke chapter 4 in verse 6. And all it says is this, or verse 7, if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now, taking completely out of context, Christians are going to walk away from that and go, praise the Lord. If I just worship God, all will be mine. The problem is, is that Satan was saying those words, not our creator. And it's so important, it's a great example to be reminded we must understand what God's word says in context, so that we can mine it and, and, and draw truth from it in the way that God has given it to us, in the way he has interpreted it. And we will clearly see in a minute that Satan wants to manipulate God's word. And here in this second point, he wants to, he wants to steal the glory of God. Again, he says to Jesus, I will give you all these kingdoms. I will give you all this authority and their, and their glory for it has been given to me, and I give it to whom I will. Now, folks, we have to disagree with Satan at this point. We, we can affirm that God has allowed Satan a reign in this world, that he has given him a freedom, but by no means is he a ruler of all things. By no means is he a ruler that he can give whatever he wants to whomever he will. Again, like I said, he operates and functions only under the submission of God. And so what he is promising to Jesus, Jesus already possesses. As the son of God, as, as God and in in, 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 in man in one, Satan is clearly offering something to Jesus that Jesus has clearly created in his own being. We know that Jesus is eternal. As God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, that he was the one who created these kingdoms that, G that Satan is promising him. And so really what Satan is wanting Jesus to do is to turn from obedience, to turn from submitting to the Father, to take a detour on his purpose there on the earth to sacrifice himself for sin. He's trying to usurp the power and the authority of God. And again, Jesus quoting from Deuteronomy clearly reminds Satan that you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. That you shall give glory to whom glory is due and that is to, to your creator. To be reminded that, that we as Christians live in a time and a place where we are constantly tempted to take uh, our lives and our kingdoms and declare them as our own glory. 
We all have the temptation to become Nebuchadnezzars in the world where we stand and say, is this not great, whatever I have created, in his case, Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and, the, and for the glory of my majesty. That's what Nebuchadnezzar said right before God humbled him in Daniel chapter 4. And folks, we are tempted we are tempted to, to live in such a way that we are not giving worship and honor and glory to whom glory is due, but instead trying to take the glory for ourselves, to, to, take off, to step off the, the path of, of God's purpose for us and instead take a detour and live in such a way where we are trying to manifest glory for ourselves. And I would even say that when we do that, that we are really stealing glory away from God because it is due to his name alone. That's why in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11, we are clearly told that for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Jesus is clearly teaching us here, backing, backing himself to the, to the same point in the, 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 the declaration to, to Israel that the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love him with all your heart, soul, and mind. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him. So as you live your life as a Christian and as a believer, does your life reflect giving God the ultimate glory? Your business, as your parents, as, your, um, as you uh, compete in the world, as you live in this world, you know, I'm thinking as I'm watching the presidential election last night, how hard it is for these men to represent Christ. Because they, they, are, they are commanded and, and it's, it's almost like taught to them to, to, in a sense, give themselves glory. And it's so hard for politicians to even stand and glorify God above all things. Instead, it's, well, if you do this, or if you vote me as president, I'm going to make all these things happen. And very rarely do we say, I submit to the authority in the scripture of God. I submit to what he says and what he does. It's so difficult in this world to take a stand against giving glory to ourselves. But God has commanded it of us to worship God and, and serve him alone. Number three, not only is Satan a deceiver, not only is he blasphemous, but Satan is cunning and yet God demands our obedience. Satan is cunning, and God demands our obedience. Finally, Satan kind of takes it home to, to where um, I think is an important time or a place for Jesus. He takes him to Jerusalem. Now let me just take a, a sidestep here and tell you that if you look at Luke chapter 4 and you look at Matthew chapter 4, you're going to see these last two temptations in the opposite order. Okay, Matthew has this temptation where, where they go to Jerusalem on the top of the pinnacle of the temple. Matthew has that as the second temptation. Luke has it as the third. And I don't think we should get caught up in the order. I think we should get caught up in the purpose, and that is the, the same temptations are here. This is not a discrepancy. There's a, a, an intentionality by the writer to order these a different way, but the purpose is still clear. The meth, message and the truth is still evident. And so following Luke chapter 4, we come to this last temptation where Jesus is taken to the top of the temple in Jerusalem. 
there at the pinnacle of the temple. And he's basically, once again, proclaiming to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now this is the most cunning of Satan's attacks, because he says, okay, Jesus, if you want to play the quoting scripture game, then let's, let's do battle that way. I'm going to quote scripture as well. And let me just tell you that if you want to go to battle with Jesus during Bible drill, you're going to lose every time. If you want to go, to, to go toe-to-toe with Jesus on the Word of God, who is the Word of God, you're going to lose the battle. And of course, uh, Satan takes a, a passage of Scripture in Psalm chapter 91, declaring to Jesus, hey, look, throw yourself off the temple and God will protect you by his angels. God's protection will take you and guard you so that you can't even strike your foot against a stone. Now, the interesting thing about this is that in Old Testament tradition, in the Jewish tradition, this passage was actually ironically used for Jewish exorcism. So they would actually use this verse and quote this verse as as Jewish rabbis and leaders would try to exorcise demons Protect, you, you know, uh, proclaiming a protection of God. And so ironically, Satan is now using this passage to the one who in the future exercises demons, and yet he's twisting it and, and taking it out of context to try to attack Jesus with the very word of God. And of course, it doesn't work. Jesus is trusting fully in God, and he's basically telling Satan, look, it is said, or he, he, he says it a little different. Instead of it is written, it is said, but he's still quoting scripture. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Here in this very last uh, temptation of Satan, Satan is trying to use God's word against Jesus. But once again, Jesus comes back and quotes in Deut- Deuteronomy chapter 6. And he is reminding them of the faithfulness of God to protect them, to to be there for them. He reminds them that as they were grumbling and complaining uh, in the wilderness wanderings, in the the situation where Israel was, was complaining and grumbling against Moses because they were thirsty. They've complained because they're hungry. God wasn't giving them what they wanted, even though every day he gave them manna. In another situation, Moses is reminding them of when they were thirsty at Massah. And there at this situation in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses reminds them that the Lord your God brought you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, to give you. And that this land has great food and good cities that you did not build. And houses full of things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And Moses tells them, and when you eat and are full, and then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are all around you, for the Lord your God is in in your midst is a jealous God. 
lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from the face of the earth. In Deuteronomy 6.16, we see this quote, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. So what is Moses reminding them and how does this connect to what Jesus is saying? Moses is reminding the people of Israel, why must you continually complain against a God who has given you all that you need? Why do you continually live in rebellion and disobedience against a God who demands your obedience? Who demands that you live a life holy and and he will provide for you and he will give you what you need? Why do you rebel against him? And so here in this situation with Jesus is as as uh, Satan is trying to tempt Jesus to forsake the way of the cross, to forsake the journey to Calvary, to instead throw yourself down from here and show the people that you are protected, that God will protect you, that he will rescue you and you will not die. Jesus is reminding Satan, don't put the Lord your God to the test. God demands obedience. He is a faithful God and he has commanded me and he has sent me out to fulfill this mission. So in a cunning way, Jesus is trying to distract, uh, Satan is trying to distract Jesus from another path than what he is set upon, and Jesus is relentless to be obedient to the Father and continue on with what he has been commanded to do, and that is live a life of ministry and then sacrifice himself for the sake of sin. And it is this very obedience that we are reminded That Jesus Christ is the one who overcomes this disobedience, who overcomes this temptation to sin and fulfills the law perfectly. He is the one and the only one who is the true victor over Satan. Because we see this in in this last point, the true victor emerges. We've seen the battle is set up. We see that the battles ensued. And last, the true victor emerges. Verse 13 It says, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. I love the way Luke concludes that because it's not over. It's not over. The fight's not over. The battle's not done. This This is Satan's first of many attacks against God himself. But specifically in the in the life of Jesus. We know and think that, or we know as we've read from Scripture, that Satan thinks that this final blow upon Jesus is when he's hanging on the cross. That he thinks that, that he has won the battle when Christ is beaten and, and scourged and, 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 and hated and mocked and put upon the cross as a criminal. And yet we all know that that is very the, in the very essence the plan of God. Satan may have thought he won the battle, But in that very instance, Jesus was winning the battle for us perfectly. The perfect lamb, without blemish and without spot, dying on the cross. So the true victor emerges not only from this battle, but ultimately when he dies on the cross and he rises from the death, destroying the bondage of sin and death upon our lives and upon all people who believe in him, who trust in him, who can be freed through the work of Jesus. And Jesus reminds us that in our spiritual battles, that the the testing that we face, the spiritual um, war that we are in, 
we are reminded that, that it, is, it is around us all the time. And I'd ask you to, as we cl- conclude this morning, to turn to Ephesians chapter 6. This is a great uh, example by Paul to, to give us the, the details of the war. To, the strategy to fight against this spiritual battle. Learning from our Savior and our Lord Jesus, the one who, who fights the battle for us, Paul reminds us in Ephesians to be aware that there's a constant battle going on. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For you not wrestle with, against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand or withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Folks, Paul is telling us here, as Jesus has demonstrated, that our strength against spiritual forces, against spiritual warfare, rests fully and completely in Jesus Christ. Amen. That we find our strength in Him, that it is resting and finding strength in the Lord, that we are finding strength in His might. It is His strength, it is His might, it is His armor. He has given these things to us because he knows that the battle is raging, that it is real, and that we must rest in the work of Christ, in the power of Christ, in our unity with Christ. When when we believe and trust in him, we are unified in Christ, and so it is by his power and strength that we can overcome these things. Why? Because he has overcome. He has overcome. He is always he has already given the deathly blow to Satan. Satan has already been defeated and yet not destroyed. And so the momentary time that we have left in the earth when we fight temptation and we fight sin and flesh and and temptation from Satan and his demons, we must know and understand that we are protected. That we shouldn't fear. That we can stand firm. And then we can have confidence that just as Jesus proclaims to us, that God is faithful. He's faithful to his word. His word is faithful to protect us and to guide us. And all that he has provided us, this full armor of God is there for our, on our behalf to fight this battle. To be a part of the winning side, the victorious side. The side of the saints who believe and trust in Christ. And so as you're here this uh, this morning, I hope that you understand and know that, that Jesus Christ um, is, our, uh, is our supply line in the war. You know, the, the understanding and the idea that in war, the soldiers and the, and the, um, the generals would run out of supplies and, and, and the very neglected um, group of people were the ones who were making the, the armor and making the, the shields and the swords and bringing food to the soldiers and, and providing all that's necessary for the war and the battle to actually uh, to, to go on. And so in the same way, Jesus Christ is like our supply line. He is providing everything we need to overcome this war in our life. 
And folks, that war is deep as it is wide. You face that war when you're at work. You face that war with your spouse. You face that war with your children. You face that war with unbelievers. And folks, I'm going to be honest with you. We have to be more aware of the spiritual attack that goes on with us. Not every bump in the night is a spiritual attack. But Satan and, and, and our sinful flesh is, is, is raging and warring against us. And we must be aware and understand that it's real. And yet we have a God who overcomes all that. And so that we must trust in him. That instead of being afraid, we will trust in the God who has already gained us victory. And that victory has been gained through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So are you trusting in him this morning? Are you aware of the spiritual battle? You know, many years ago as a young minister, my wife and I would have to drive 20, 25 minutes to church. So we understand, Adam. And it, it never failed. I, I felt like that on Sunday mornings, you know, temp, tempers get, you know, they get elevated and, and fights ensue. And, I, and I, I, I remember one time realizing and saying to my wife, you realize that, that we fight a lot on the way to church? Like as this distraction to what we're supposed to go and do? And folks, that, that's just a reminder to us that, that man, Satan wants us to, to, to be off our game. He wants us to, to have our mind focuses on, on, on things that are not of the kingdom of God. And that happens in so many ways. And, and so we have to prepare for that. Prepare in simple ways like immersing ourselves in the word of God and, and reminding and refreshing our, our thoughts and, and understanding of God's word constantly as we face these attacks. As we think of things that are untrue to be reminded of the truth of God when we assume things about our brothers and sisters in Christ, to be reminded of the, of the commands to love uh, our, our, our neighbor and love our brothers and sisters in Christ as we love ourselves. To be reminded of the world who is going to act illogically and, and unreasonably toward Christians who are going to persecute us, that we should expect such a persecution instead of being so offended by it. Of course, abortion makes sense to unbelieving people who are seeking out their own convenience. Of course, that makes sense to them. It should not make sense to us. We should oppose it in every way. And so we should be prepared, preparing our mind and being strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, as Paul tells us. We should walk and trust in the faithfulness of our God. Let's pray.